You are listening to Something Rather Than Nothing. Creator and host, Ken Vellante. Editor and producer, Peter Bauer. Hey everybody, this is Ken Vellante with the Something Rather Than Nothing podcast and really honored and pleased uh, to welcome uh, writer, musician, uh, poet, uh, Sadie Dupuis. Uh, Sadie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, it's so nice to have you on the show and uh, come in contact with your music uh, in, in your writing and uh, uh, read a bunch about uh, a lot of stuff you do uh, sticking up for uh, workers and, 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 and safety. So um, I'm deeply intrigued to be able to chat with you. Um, one overlap I saw is... Um, over at the University of Massachusetts and uh, with the band formation out there in Massachusetts. I'm originally from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and I uh, went to the University of Massachusetts and studied uh, and studied labor studies. But uh, give a little bit of uh, kind of background over there in Massachusetts and, and UMass and uh, where you come from. Yeah, um, I'm not from Massachusetts, but I lived there on and off for a while. I uh, grew up in New York and then my mom moved to Connecticut when I was in middle school. And then when I first went to college, I did it in Boston. So I was there for a few years. Um, really loved the city, but I did not so much like was not doing so hot in school. So I, I dropped out for a little bit, um, moved back to moved a couple places, but eventually back to New York and finished my undergrad there. And then um, when I finished college, I'd been working through school, various gigs, but um, I'd been doing some freelance writing and some magazine writing. And I spent the maybe year and a half after I finished undergrad attempting to freelance write full time. Uh, it was not very compatible with my mental health to be a full-time yeah. freelancer. Uh, yeah. This is also the year, the years like 2010 and 2011. And I'm like, gosh, uh, all the magazine jobs are going away and all the rates per word are getting less and less. I should get out of this immediately. So I applied to, I'd studied poetry in college ultimately. So I applied to a couple MFA programs, including uh, UMass Amherst, which had an amazing faculty of James Tate and Dara Wire and Peter Gizzi, uh, all of whom I got to study with. And they offered me um, a teaching fellowship that uh, made my tuition free and, and offered me a, a salary. So that's kind of how I was like, oh, I can get, I can, I can have a more stable life if I teach writing yeah. at a college than trying to freelance. In so ironically, in, I've had yeah. to return to some of that freelance work since the pandemic and gosh, it pays even less than it did 12 years. Ah. Ago. <sighs> but that's sort of how I wound up at, at UMass. And um, I had been in bands since I was a little kid and had a band in New York. And then when I moved up there, I put some solo stuff up on Bandcamp, basically as a bid to make local friends. I had a lot of friends in the Boston music scene, but the Western Mass one was kind of its own. There's cross pollination, but it was kind of its own thing. Yeah. Um, and that's how I started doing uh, Speedy RTs, just as sort of a bid to make friends, having moved to a new city. And I loved uh, being at UMass and, and getting to teach there and got to visit for the Juniper Festival 
a couple months ago, which was really cool. No, I'm glad. I'm glad to. I'm glad to hear that, and uh, just the reasoning behind you know putting the band and thinking about music, just meet some folks and and connect, yeah. right? Like <laughs> that's that's kind of some of the some of the basis for it. Um, I mean, unfortunately, that's still how I approach a lot of art projects. I'm uh, <laughs> very so community and socially minded to the detriment of the the. Uh, bottom line often <laughs> yeah yeah recognizing that sometimes the labor wages are being redirected <laughs> to somebody else's uh somebody else's pocket um what about what about uh so one of the things on the show that i've come in contact with is like you know i do um union work and labor organizing is uh, for for quite some time and uh and then as i've started to develop like uh, art or an artistic, uh, side, um, learning lessons about organizing or arts within organizing, not necessarily like in either or, right. Like that organizing and art, um, you know, being embedded. Do you, do you, how do you view your work? Like, uh, working with people and organizing, um, in its connection to the art that you create? Yeah. Um, I'll say that not not explicitly organizing work, but advocacy work has been pretty cooked into my relationship with playing music since I was young. Um, I made a, a hopefully long lost to the internet album when I was in high school and wound up uh, giving the money to um, supplies for families who'd been displaced by Katrina. So that this was like, the, from the very first album I did, I was always kind of, how can I use it to do something else also? Um, and we've kind of maintained incorporation of projects like that into Speedy Ortiz from the outset. Um, we were pretty early on doing Bandcamp only release and all the money will go to this food bank or um, go to, uh, you know, this street medic team or... or different things like that. Um, and on tour as well, we've, we've for a long time put out a tip jar and all of the tips for that tour will go to a specific, um, cause or organization. We did one for Islamic relief fund a few years ago. We did a whole tour where we, um, apart from a, a salary, we, we paid ourselves weekly. All the profit went to girls rock camp foundation. Um, and we were able to have like camper bands come play with us. So, I wouldn't say that is necessarily organizing other than organizing a donation to a place. Um, uh, the first, let's see, we, we also starting around 2018 or 2019 started to have different, uh, we've always had different groups come table at our shows when, when the group is interested or there's volunteers who are down to be there. Um, but we started to more conscientiously work with harm reduction groups so that we could, distribute Narcan or test strips or other harm reduction materials at our show. And, and that's just um, from th that kind of sprung out of the personal uh, grief of having lost friends to overdose and, and wanting to make sure that live music could begin to incorporate the things that save people who use drugs lives, um, just like yeah. essential medical supplies that shouldn't be controversial and um, 
need to be normalized in a live music space, need to be normalized in every space because people use drugs in all kinds of spaces, but that's the one where, where I work. So um, it became important to us to have that as part of our show. So I would say any of that is organizing, that's advocacy stuff, but I was part of, um, in like, so I have a lot of friends who do, who are much d deeper involved in labor and other forms of organizing than I am. And one of those friends is um, Michael DeForge, who's a, an artist I've collaborated with a lot, one of my best friends. And he was involved in a group and still is, I think, called Cartoonists Against Amazon. Um, and they were basically trying to keep Amazon out of independent cartooning festivals and other um, events like that uh, yeah. for so many millions of reasons to not work with Amazon and to not have your work associated with Amazon. And so talking to him about that project um, and feeling very angry and frustrated at the the awful things I would see constantly from Amazon and also seeing musicians making Amazon created music videos all the time that there was like this period of time where Amazon would just give you a boatload of money to make a music video, which like great to get a boatload of money, but the, the, the Amazon money is particularly blood tinted. So a bunch of musicians that I know who are similarly outraged by Amazon's practices and in particular their contracts with ICE and with Customs and Border Patrol and the way that their technology was being used to power deportations and other forms of violent, often deadly policing, um, signed a thing pledging not to make new exclusive content with Amazon. Um, and then a, a number of us escalated that a step further and, and took our catalogs down from Amazon. So that was kind of my first experience in, hey, I have this idea that would hopefully make our workplaces less... <laughs> like accidentally violent. Uh, I, none of us want our music to be powering these awful things. Can we do something? So that that wound up um, pretty successful. And a lot of musicians spoke out against Amazon. And uh, from that, there was a... So there were a number of musicians on sort of that email thread and part of that campaign and doing various things as part of that campaign. And early in the pandemic... Um, it kind of shifted over to, hey, all the people who worked on this project, what do you think about a musician's union? Many of us are not eligible for the AFM. We're not eligible for SAG-AFTRA. And yet we have absolutely no protections. And uh, there's a million reasons that it would be great to organize and have conversations about how things can change. So that kind of sprung into the um, United Musicians and Allied Workers, uh, UMA, which is the... Uh, <laughs> 501c4, so not technically a, a union, which is why it's no longer the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers. But um, yeah. Wow, I um, I I appreciate I appreciate a lot of what you had to say and 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 talk about and um, you know about the the extent of uh, of drugs and just safety issues like you said about, um, around overdose. So I really appreciate you talking about that. And, and, and yeah, of course, that. I mean, everybody, you know, everybody who's listening, if they don't know someone who's died of overdose, they know someone who knows someone who dies of overdose. This touches yeah. every family, every community, every workplace. Um, and the way we can 
keep our friends with us is to provide the public health resources that the harm reduction advocates and uh, organizers have known work for for decades. So um, obviously it isn't, I, I don't love that I, I hate that I've lost friends to overdose, but I do value being able to connect with other people who share in this grief and, and want to prevent others from going through it. So yeah, um, the only way that happens is by normalizing conversation around drug use and around overdose prevention. Yeah. And I think a lot of things, um, sometimes when you talk about, uh, safety ideas or safety concerns in general, like human safety, sometimes there's, there can be this kind of, um, flipping attitude or something around, you know, around this. Um, an example I would give is, uh, I did an episode on the station fire in Rhode Island, um, mm, yeah. with the hundred, uh, folks who, who were lost in the, in, in that fire and the horror behind how it happened and, and negligence and, and, uh, fire safety. So one of the things that completely transfer, transformed uh, my, my, my thinking on it and just about like thinking about things like space and performers and the space that they're in, in crowds and just simply not making assumptions that somebody is doing something or that there is a safety exit or somebody has thought things through because, you know, there can be some really hazardous situations um, if things go wrong, which we've seen sure. sometimes. Um Tell us about Wax Nine uh, Records and uh, also the journal. The 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 journal uh, connected with that. I was fascinated to see that there was a journal connected to the label. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so Wax Nine began as an imprint of Cart Park Records, who've released most of Speedy Ortiz's discography as well as um, Sad Thirteen, and initially. We, I floated the idea with the folks at Car Park because I wanted to put out a record by some friends I won't name because we didn't wind up working with them. They they stuck with their their old label. But <laughs> we, the idea kind of came from wanting to help friends put out a record who didn't have a, a label offer. Um, the name was my mom's uh, pen name when she worked for Punk Magazine. I think it's just such a cool name that of course I had to steal it for this <laughs> circulation for this um so the first record we actually wound up doing was for Milk Belly a really great Chicago band that I've loved forever and they didn't have a, a label offer on the late did I say <laughs> I'm trying to say label offer I'm saying like labor awful um <laughs> uh so we did a Milk Belly record then we we started working with Johanna Warren uh, a formerly Portland-based artist who is kind of nomadic. I don't even know where Johanna lives these days. Possibly Wales. Um, a very different-sounding artist. Uh, just an incredible folk songwriter, finger-picker, singer. Um, Milk Belly's like a kind of post-rock Chicago heavy weirdo. Lightning Bolt-inspired, but very breedersy, poppy band. Um, and then the most recent artist we've worked with is Space Moth, who is a uh, Bay Area producer, um, amazing synthesis, tape loops. Also, the songs are very catchy and, and poppy and thoughtful, um, kind of in the vein of uh, broadcast. So there are three very different, and of course, my stuff too. Um, 
very different sounding artists, but all people whose work I just really believed in and was excited that Car Park felt the same way and was willing to work on the records. So my role on those is basically just as the A&R, um, bring them to Car Park, hope, hope that you know they've been interested in putting it out. Um, in those cases, yes. Uh, we don't get to do a ton of stuff because it's a, that's a small label and the staff is already uh, working as hard as they can. Um, and then in the pan, so that, that was kind of like where it started is just this imprint um, of Car Park. And I've done a couple releases outside of, uh, without Car Park as well under that same label including a couple compilations that were uh, for charity alongside father-daughter records who I admire and love so much. Um, and then when the pandemic started and everybody I knew who does any form of writing was getting laid off. And of course, every touring musician was laid off by default. Um, I, I noticed a lot of, uh, it always drives me crazy to see poetry websites with very high submission fees and then they don't pay you for your work. And whatever Ouch. I can say about record label deals, um, poetry deals are so insane to me as someone familiar with, with record label contracts. Um, what is considered a very good royalty rate in the world of books, you would the record label would be canceled if that was a music contract. Wow. Um, I don't know why these worlds are so different. This is not to, to throw shade on any particular publisher, but a pretty standard royalty rate in music is a 50, 50 split. Uh, it's, it's really not that way. A lot of my friends who publish books have 10% royalties. Um, I have a little more than that. I think I have quote unquote high royalty rates, but it's not, anywhere near what is standard for music. Um, so that aside, uh, I just felt resentful of seeing, getting a lot of emails when the pandemic started of like, submit your poems for $20 to this online journal and you get absolutely nothing if you uh, have been published. So yeah. I went, I got a friend to kind of reconfigure the Wax9 website so it could be an online journal. We set up a thing. so. People could choose to donate or to do a submission fee if they wanted, but absolutely not compulsory. Was not being checked against the submissions, obviously. Um, and then the the folks we published would get uh, paid for their work. So we had uh, three poets and one illustrator per issue. It's not really an issue. It's like an online thing where you see three things in a row. But um, yeah, that, that's kind of how it started. And and start of the pandemic, boy, we were all working on some manic projects, I think. Uh, we were publishing once a week for a while, um, mm. first few months of the pandemic. Then it became bi-weekly, then it became monthly. Right now, it's on a little bit of a vacation just because I've been so busy with other projects. And um, I was the sole reader and editor for this. So we got quite a lot of submissions. And of course, I would read them all and want to make sure that the things we were picking were the correct fits for one another that month. Um, so it's on a little bit of a break right now and I'm excited to resume it at some point, but that's yeah. the story of the wax nine poetry journal. I Anger at other online journals that <laughs> don't compensate <laughs> people for their work and charge them to submit. <laughs> Make sure you check it out. I'll, I'll be digging. Um, I'll be, I'll be digging further 
further into it. Um, <laughs> gotta gotta ask you, Sadie. Uh, philosophy and art uh, podcast. A couple bigger questions. Uh, you've been uh, around art, uh, doing art for quite some time. What is art? Oh my god, these are the questions I'm terrible at. I'm good at a micro level, but I. <laughs> Zoom I, I, don't I don't know. I've listened to you talk and I've read Oops. some things. I'm, uh, I've, I've listened to you talk and read some things. I, uh, uh, I'll, yes. What is art? What is art? Uh, anything you want it to be. I think it's the, you can make anything you approach artful. Um, I, there's certain forms of art I engage in. Um, I think I approach them with some similarities, but, uh, I've always, you know, I, I love consuming media. I love being a fan of different kinds of things. And so in response, I've enjoyed making my own things in response to um, the things I love or the things that other people I know are making. So I've been, my mom is a, a painter. Um, so we grew up doing a lot of visual art together. My dad played piano a little bit. So I grew up playing with him and then um, doing other kinds of music really my whole childhood. So there's always been this backdrop of uh, working on little projects and the excitement over starting those or finishing them or putting them out, having them be in conversation with my friends' things or um, the bigger picture things that I'm inspired by. So what is art? Compul compulsion to make a little thing? Yeah. And sometimes it scales big and you didn't expect it, but... That's cool too. That's cool too. I, I I really enjoy that. I um I got your co poetry collection, uh, cry cry perfume, and uh, purchased it at uh, Powell's Powell's Books, and um, was just uh, wondering. I mean, obviously, um, seeing things you've written and lyrics and such, you know, the 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 lyricism, and you mentioned you studied uh, poetry. Mm -hmm. What was it? What was it like for you to 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 put this volume out, collect it as such as your poetry volume? Yeah, the so the first book I published is called Mouthguard, and that book is basically my UMass MFA thesis with some amount of editing, but um, most of that editing happened while I was in that that graduate program. So this is the first book I've written that was just written to be a, a book, not as part of courses, not as part of a schedule, not as part of this sort of tight-knit but somewhat artificial community of writers. Um, so it feels very different to me because I was writing towards a project, which is my preferred way of writing. With Mouthguard, I was writing towards that semester's workshop or, you know, the particular writer I was enjoying that month. And it was over a longer, not really a longer period of time, just more, more concentrated. So a lot more revisions, a lot more um, gearing something towards the reading I knew I had to do that week or the, the, the whatever kind of thing like that. Um, this one was written towards a project, but not with all of this audience along the way, I wasn't cry perfume. I wasn't writing 
to show something to a professor that week. I wasn't writing to show something to my workshop peers that week. I wasn't writing to do a reading that week. Um, I was writing when I could on the road uh, towards this project. And the difference in the difference in my my age, I guess, is a, a big factor. I mean, I finished Mouthguard. I guess I started that that program when I was 23, and I was not by any stretch a professional musician. I'd always played in bands since I was a little kid. Um, I was self conscious when I entered the program about being like a music poet, so I kind of tried to keep it out. Um, and it was only when I finished the program that I was in the position where I could even try to do music as a full-time thing. So I didn't have awareness of a lot of the labor concerns that Yuma has been discussing and, and working on. I didn't have awareness of um, all of the ways that music work, as gratifying as it can be, can also uh, just be incredibly unhealthy for the, the artists who are engaging in it. Um, I didn't have an understanding of the intersections between tech and art and how artists can be so frequently exploited at the hands of um, tech's bottom line. So those all kind of went into this book in a way that they wouldn't have been able to be part of the first book because I just didn't know. I was someone in a band who was like grateful for every, I'm still grateful for every show. That's not to say I'm, I'm not, but um, I didn't have a, an understanding of the inner workings when I did the first book. Yeah, I um, I uh, one of my first episodes I had done was uh, with the poet uh, Bunkang Tuan, who, who mm. I met at the University of Massachusetts. He teaches at uh, Union College. Very influential on me, and it was one of the first episodes um, that I did. Might have been my first poet uh, that that I that I had on. Uh, which cool. Was, yeah, it was wonderful, and I've loved going into. Um, uh, poetry and having having those um, types of conversations about one of the things I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you one one things I wanted to mention that I just dropped a note on it was had to do with the father daughter records and my gosh I ran into a few bands uh, on that label I listened to uh, Whitney uh, Ballin uh, mm. on, on that label. Um, just really incredible. And I was surprised to, to hear you say, I, I just, I, it just, I had congregated around that label. So, um, yeah, really amazing stuff coming out there. Um, as yeah. Well. A funny, a funny story about father daughter records is that Jesse who runs the label and I have been in touch for like 10 years for various things, but, um, uh, we worked together with Wax Nine and, and Father Daughter on co-releasing a tribute to Adam Schlesinger after he passed, and it was a fundraiser for um, MusicCare's uh, health fund for for musicians impacted by COVID. Um, Adam Schlesinger passed away from COVID early on in the pandemic, which was very tragic. We were yeah. able to get a lot of his friends and fans to contribute covers to this compilation, um, and we. I think it, it charted fairly. I can't remember the numbers now because I'm terrible at that all the time. Um, but it, 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 I think it sold well enough that we were able to make a sizable donation in his name. Um, we were able to work with his estate to get you know pictures and, and things like that together so that fans of his amazing music could um, just be a part of this like celebration of his life. It was really a cool project and and Jesse and I got close working on it, and now Jesse's my manager. And my goodness! So yeah, sometimes it 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 all works out. 
That's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. Um, I've had some bad managers, and uh, ah, Jesse is uh-huh. not one. <laughs> <laughs> Let's so talk buy about buy all the father-daughter records things, so that um, oh my goodness, the lack of it income was... being generated by speedier tees doesn't matter. <laughs> no, the um, I it was um, I really got into this album, and it was uh, uh, I, I think she's wonderful, Whitney uh, Ball, and it was um, you're a shooting star, I'm a sinking ship. Cool. Um, and uh, very Pacific Northwest uh, feels a little bit like Twin Peaks. There's a there's a vibe about it. I just I, I just adore. Um, so uh, I wanted to mention to the listeners just quickly. Um, I'm not sure if this annoys you that you were on the New Yorker that an illustration was on of you was on in the New Yorker, but why would that the, annoy me? That was so cool. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know you, but sometimes like, Oh, I'm glad you said it's so cool because I would think it's so cool too. But sometimes people are like, uh, you know, who would I be wanna... annoyed that they got illustrated for the cover of the New Yorker? I don't. Well, maybe Not it's the people I, I hang. hang out maybe with. it's the people I hang right. Maybe I got some sort of fundamental <laughs> problem that we can't get. We can't get into. Uh, Unless the New Yorker was on strike and it ran. Yeah, down. right. It was at the I'd wrong time. Then it was I'd at the wrong upset. time. Yeah, yeah. You didn't control the schedule release, and they released it your week when they were walking. Yeah, so. I mean, they certainly do things like that. Oh gosh, oh, publications gosh. sure do. Uh, there is a there is a playbook. There is a playbook. Um, so everybody, um, Sadie Dupuis was on the uh, the cover of New Yorker, and there was this article called uh, "How Did Sadie Dupuis End Up on the Cover of the New Yorker?" And one of the things I discovered in going to that was uh, through. Uh, uh, Nicole Rifkin is the, the illustrator who had done that and uh, that you had a connection. I believe she's a, a neighbor of yours. Um, and Not a neighbor, just a, just a, a buddy and mutual just a buddy. appreciator. A buddy and a mutual appreciator. But the strange thing re- regarding the podcast is I had an illustrator, Chloe Nicholas, and I love her stuff, um, based in Baltimore. And she was so great. I said, "Could I'd like you to co-host uh, an episode. I said, can you pick some like cool illustrators? And she picked Nicole. So i hoping very soon we have Nicole Rifkin on something rather than nothing uh, as, as, as well. But okay, you're on The New Yorker. Like, what the heck was that experience like? Yeah, um... Nicole, I don't even know how we know each other. I think I think basically Nicole has been in the orbit of a lot of exploding in sound bands, which is a New York-based label that we did our first EP with. It was their first vinyl pressing was the sports EP by Speedy Ortiz. Great label. I love so many bands on that label, as do many people, and Nicole is one of them. And... Nicole started illustrating a lot of posters and record covers and and things like that for the the bands that I know and love. Um, So I think we just became friends through that, through, you know, finding out that Nicole liked my band's music and um, she'd illustrated me or the band a couple times just like for fun and posted it. Uh, And they're always like my, you know, sometimes when someone illustrates you, it's pretty hit or miss. I've had some atrocious ones where I'm like, oh God, this is what I, the body dysmorphia through illustration. It's an interpretation of me. Um, it's an interpretation. <laughs> but Nicole's are always like incredibly gorgeous and uh, oh. their sense of color and style is just incredible. Oh so we, we just have been friends through, I admire their work and, and vice versa. Um, so Nicole was like, I'm, can I, can you model for something I'm doing? 
and sent like a reference picture. And I, I in this room, I lay down on the ground and put my phone tripod up and tried to get some some pictures. And uh, that was basically it. And I, I, knew, I only knew pretty close to when it published that the that it was I, th- I don't even think I knew it was for the New Yorker um, that that's what it would be and that it'd be the cover and Nicole definitely threw all these different little Easter eggs in that I didn't know about um, the books I'm reading are all things that that I love uh, Imogen Binney and Dan Ozzy are in there and I think the thing I'm holding is supposed to be like a physical version of Wax 9 which doesn't exist but should uh, wow. and my dog is illustrated on the back of it and if you like go deep into the Nicole like loves doing little Easter eggs. It's it's very cool as someone who yeah. likes to spot them. But um, a bunch of former Brooklyn DIY spaces are sort of in the fine text. Um, so yeah, that was cool. Great is great, great cover. You look great. Great illustration. Um, I uh, jaw dropping Nicole's stuff. Uh, I first saw jaw dropping. Uh, so yeah, really really love that. Nicole Rifkin and uh, congratulations. What a, when you mentioned some of the details that were in there or seen it for the first time, that's how it was presented. So this uh, sounds so fascinating to be able to have that experience of being like, Oh my gosh, take a look at that. And uh, I'm glad, I'm glad for you. That's awesome. What's funny. There was a, um, I'm forgetting who wrote this now and I feel terrible. There's a pitchfork article after the cover came out and the, the headline is basically like, how did Sadie Dupuis end up on the cover of the New Yorker? And it, then it's both Nicole and I are interviewed basically saying exactly what I just said to you, which is that we admire each other's work and became friends through that. And I, someone sent me that someone made like a Reddit thread where they posted this article and was like, this article doesn't need to exist. They're just friends. <laughs> it's like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I got some quotes. Mystery solved. You got some good quotes, right? No, no, it was a cool article. It, I, yeah, I thought yeah. it was, you know, I think the point of it was like, how do musicians and artists know one another and inspire yeah. one another? Um, but yeah, the, the well, and I thought crew. the points were in there about uh, music illustration, you know, is they just kind of like made you think of some of that crossover. Yeah. Like, there's t- and, so much crossover. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, uh, I wanted to chat with you, Sadie, about a uh, speedy Ortiz and, um, release, uh, coming out um on your label can what what tell tell us about tell us about that that album what's what what's going on with that what's going on with it yeah um it's the first album i've made in the pandemic uh let's see we recorded it in march of last year and i had done all the writing and and pre-production for it um in the somewhere between the summer and the winter before that, um, we, none of us had really traveled or much less been on a flight until we went out to Joshua tree to record it. Uh, we worked at Rancho de la Luna, which is a studio I've long appreciated for a ton of things that were recorded there. Um, Mark Lanigan is, is one huge one. Uh, his records mean so much to me and, um, some of my favorite sounds, were done at, at Rancho, um, the desert sessions, which have brought together so many musicians I admire, like PJ Harvey and Carl oh my gosh. and Billy Gibbons. You could just go on and on naming people who've uh, done it. And that's all done at, at Rancho de la Luna, which is this really cool house that's been converted to a studio. 
Um, and we, David Catching, who runs the studio, is just an incredible and inspiring and kind person. We, it was such a treat to get to hang out with him and um, have him, you know, they've got, I think we used 100 guitars. <laughs> I counted it up recently. It might, it might be that we used 50 different guitars, like 300 pedals and 100 amps or something. Maybe I'm reversing guitars and, and amps, but we used everything there. And David's so knowledgeable about all his gear and it's so lovingly curated. So that was really inspiring. And then we brought uh, Sarah Tudson, one of our best friends, to come co-produce with us. Uh, her band Illuminati Hotties is one of my favorites. And um, she's just a, a wonderful person and, and so fun to work with other than we bring out each other's worst workaholic tendencies, <laughs> which is, you know, give or take. You um, need some of, that, some of that, right? And yeah, just to, to have been basically n not having gone anywhere for a year and a half in the pandemic, maybe it was almost two years at that 2022. Yeah. I guess it had been close to two years at the point that we went out to Joshua tree. Um, we, uh, it was just so great to get to spend that time with my bandmates and to be in this beautiful, different environment and, uh, step outside of the studio for a breath of fresh air. And you're just in the amazing desert. Um, so that was just wonderful. And, in terms of the subject matter and the direction of it, uh, one one of the 400 million random jobs I do, um, I interview artists for publications and also to write their their bios and their press releases. And it's doing that latter kind of interview that you wind up hearing a lot of stories that are off the record, but but make you think about how the person approached the art. And it, it feels like a common thread of, of folks who were writing in the pandemic and folks who tour is just this, the relentlessness of touring helps you to not dwell on or process old trauma. So things that were traumas that are, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old were coming up for people when they were forced to be at home. And I'm sure this is true of everybody, not just musicians. We had a lot of time to yeah. reflect, which can be scary and upsetting, but, um, in my case was really necessary and I was not an exception to that. You know, I, I was thinking about um, childhood trauma and childhood abuse that I'd never written about really discussed with anyone in yeah. decades. Um, and that worked its way into some of the material for the first time. So it was really scary. Um, but I was so grateful to have my friends between the band and Sarah and, David to get to write through and perform some of this stuff for the first time. Um, so that was certainly a factor. And then there's also plenty of my, what I have been joking is my like Holden Caulfield bullshit. Uh, Tell me about like, that. You, you got phony, my attention phony, uh, even more. Phony. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's, yeah. you know, the, the lead single of the song is called scabs. It's about people who are antagonizing a, a postal worker at our, um, at the postal office. Um, and this was like in the middle of a time when the budget cuts and changes oh, yeah. of hours and all kinds of things were being widely opposed by various mail, the, the mail carriers unions. Um, yeah. and I'm like, how do you not know this? And you're going to make this person's life difficult when in the next breath you're thanking essential workers. Um, so witnessing that and just thinking about times I've seen folks, uh, 
happy to pretend like they support workers until they're personally inconvenienced made me think of times when, for instance, working on that um, Amazon campaign I described, there were plenty of musicians who were just giving us shit for, for what? Like, you're going to argue that it's great that people die at an Amazon warehouse and then are just on the floor for hours? Like, you're going to, why are you shilling for Amazon? Um, So that, those kind of came, became combined in my mind, uh, the way that people are, are happy to support workers until it would be inconvenient for them not to cross a picket line and then they'll, they'll go for it. things like that um more so pertaining to the music industry because that's where i work but um yeah so those are kind of the themes of the the record i think it's always interesting um you kind of talk about different type of jobs but i know uh when you're talking about the idea you know uh unions and musicians or 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 workers we think about professional workers as type of workers not historically you know um and unionized and just seeing how i mean by design the laws have prevented us from doing so i've talked to comic book artists i'm a huge comic book fan yeah um 
and, you know, uh, and I, I've talked, I've, they've talked to me, they find out, you know, Hey, Oh, you're, you're a labor guy. And then you have the type of conversation and it can be harrowing. Some of the things you talk about of rates sure. and what people do just to, and what's done for free and what's expected for free. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a lot of labor, um, unpaid or not paid, not paid enough. Uh, yep. This might be related to what I was just talking about, but the name of the show and the question I have is why is there something rather than nothing? Because I love, because I compulsively work on my little projects. What do you mean? (laughs) What else would I do with my waking hours? (laughs) Making something with your time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think I've had that answer a couple times uh, recently. It's in the doing. It's in the making of. It's in the making of things. It's in. It, it's in. It's in that happening. Um, about the re- about the uh, record September first, twenty twenty three release date. That's correct. I understand. That's yep. wonderful. We and, tried to uh, time everything to be uh, so. Rabbit, rabbit is a superstitious thing that that I say on the first of every month, and I have since I was a little kid. Just to say it first thing when you wake up for good luck. Um, and so I, at some point, maybe like 2017, I started to tweet it once a month and it's a, I quote tweet myself every time. So people are always like, I, I get a reply on the first one from 2017. So I was like, wow, I can't believe I scrolled all the way back. Um, and yeah. when we decided to name the record this, I started working on, on writing uh, on July. F- well, I, I assemble little bits and pieces, but I started working on writing in earnest on July 1st, uh, 2020. No, it has to have been the year before 2021. Um, and so I just put it in a document. I, I typed rabbit rabbit up top, not expecting that to be the, the name of the record, but I was just like, haha, I'm starting on the first. Um, and a few months later, my bandmate Andy was like, you know what? We should call the record rabbit rabbit. And I was like, yeah, it's really funny. I I'm like it. Working in this document where I'm keeping meticulous notes of all the things that have gone into working on these songs, what, what inspired different ones, uh, all the different stages of lyrics and it's called rabbit rabbit. So that's kind of how we landed on the name. Andy just suggesting that it should be. And I was like, it's weirdly already the name of the file. Um, and so now I look like I'm the, the, I have the most foresight and marketing genius of any other moment in my life because I've been saying this. It looks like you do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's totally, uh, retconned, but, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> anyway, so the record comes out September 1st. We announced it June 1st. Uh, I think the third single comes out August 1st. We couldn't we couldn't make July 1st happen because I think it's a weekend. But other than Love that, it. we're really trying to stick to the theme here. No, I I I, I um no, I love that too. And it's, it's it's a great title. And I love to hear um I love the to to hear the background um to it. So I wanted to, um, I wanted to, uh, to, to mention, um, one other thing, uh, with regards, uh, to your work, uh, to the listeners, um, your solo work on sad 13. And, um, uh, I was wondering w- with that, um, being, a you know, a different, a different style in, in, in your solo work, um, just in general, um, do you end up ha- feeling you have to go, to that 
solo expression at times and more towards like, you know, working with Speedy Ortiz or is it, is there, you know, is there something deliberate about it in, in your creativity and what, and what you're doing? Yeah. I feel like the answer has changed over the years when I first wanted to do, well, to jump even farther back when I started doing Speedy Ortiz, it was because I'd been in this band for five years and the drummer was a, um, an engineer and a producer and so even though I'd, I'd grown up doing home recording and enjoyed playing all kinds of instruments, I didn't really have that role in my old band. Um, and I wanted an outlet to make some weird stuff at home where I play yeah. the drums and I play the bass and I play all the stuff. Um, so that's what Speedy Ortiz started as, just my, my home recorded lo-fi thing where I play everything. And uh, I've always really enjoyed projects that are like that. Um, one of my, you know, Absolute, absolute favorites. Elliot Smith would frequently play everything on a recording and was kind of a, a big advocate of, of home recording. So um, that's what Speedy Ortiz started as, although it probably sounded more like the Lou Barlow solo thing than, than the Elliot Smith <laughs> thing. But um, then, you know, that suddenly, you know, I'd been in this other band for five years and I'd taken it as seriously as I could to be, you know, playing the eight people you know, <laughs> once in a while. But people liked the the weird solo stuff so it uh, the band kind of built around that um and of course once it's a band i enjoy playing with everybody and then we get a little more professional sounding and then we've done a few records and they all sound quite professional because they are and then i'm suddenly like i just did the same thing to myself now i don't have the outlet for my weird stuff i make at home or where i get to play everything um so I started doing Sad 13 because I, I just needed to do something all myself and, and to have that kind of creative outlet. Because I find when I'm working on stuff alone, I'm, I'm not good at jamming. I like will never, I, I won't do it. Uh, put my foot down. Um, it's in your contract. I, yeah, I, I like to be alone in a room for 14 hours and see what crazy improbable ideas happen from that. Not so much um, in any kind of like jam so I started doing Sad 13 so I could do stuff like that. And the first record was very bedroom pop influenced because that's just what I could figure out how to how to play um, in the tiny bedroom I was subletting. Um, and then doing that made me realize I wanted to be more involved in the production end of things for Speedy too because it's just a, a part of... The arrangement process is the song to me. Um, I'm... I definitely, any little textural thing feels like part of the song to me. It's not, it's not, uh, what do people call it? Candy. It's not just decorative. It's like part of the arrangement. So the next Speedy record, having learned to produce better with synths and drum machines, we incorporated some more stuff like that. Um, we weren't coming from the same place with those synths and drum machines as I was with Sad 13, um, but it still was part of it. And then the next Sad 13 record I did, of course, had a little bit more rock stuff to it. Um, I was really enjoying a lot of like British new wave stuff. I was enjoying a lot of like guitar based pop music from like the 80s, which is not at all where the first Sad 13 record was coming from. But the lines between it, it being like a full band and just me got a little bit blurred, even though mm. um, apart from our amazing drummers, like Brescher, I was playing pretty much everything on that record. Um and then in the pandemic, 
you start, everybody started to have to learn how to do all these different kinds of things. So yeah. a lot of the work I was getting offered was like, do a remix, do some background music for this, you know, podcast, do some podcast theme songs, do a score for this thing. Um, so I started to get deeper into learning how to mix and, and learning production things that I knew a little bit of, but I hadn't taken a recording class since the year 2007. Um, so it was a bit of playing catch up. And now, uh, I guess the distinction is just, do I, I still pre-produce everything pretty fully for this speedy record. When I sent everybody demos, it had drums and bass and a million guitars and keyboards and stuff on it. Um, but it's a question of, do I want to rework this with my friends and, and figure out how to play this together and, um, have it, have that kind of component to it. So that, that's sort of the distinction. Do I want to be alone in my room till four in the morning adding, you know, weird pitch tuned bells or do I want to play a loud thing with my friends? And especially as some of the subject matter, as I was saying, was like returning to these early childhood traumas, I was thinking about what made me want to do music in the first place and, and how music was this um, escape from things that were tough to face. And so I was thinking a lot about the music that I loved when I first played guitar. Um, and so I think some of the like heavier influences that that I first excited me about music, like a lot of new metal stuff. I love Deftones. I love Incubus. Yeah. Uh, that was like a big early influence on my guitar playing. Um, that's not something I can make happen alone in the room. Uh, or I mean, I can, but it's not the same thing. It, it's, you know, about doing a band and doing a band with your friends. So we were, we were all kind of thinking along those lines of like early formative musical loves and, and how to incorporate them into this record. Yeah. I, um, I, there's something about the way you talk about music. I'm not a music expert at all. Like I'm, I'm obsessive about it, but the, the technical pieces are explaining it. I, I do struggle with it, but I heard you talk about Elliot Smith and favorite Elliot Smith song. And I, I, I'm just telling you, I was, I was just, I was just fascinated. And I, I remember in your description and talking about the members of the band that there was there, I think it was a list of 10 Elliot Smith songs in each band member. And there was only convergence on. Um, oh gosh. Yeah. I forgot. We did this a long time ago. Yeah. I, I, I but I, I adore Elliot Smith. And for me, listen to somebody talk about music. I understood everything and it was exciting to listen to. And I have, I haven't articulated, you know, all that, but I, when somebody's talking about music and, and just, I could understand when you're talking about like structurally how it was put together and wasn't just driving me nuts. It was just like a way of understanding things that I don't have the ability to describe in general that occur in Elliot Smith's song. So I just wanted to thank you for that. Cause it was wonderful to listen to. It's funny. Like, I, I wrote an essay for a, um, an anthology recently that's about uh, food. And I was talking about how, as I have gotten more technically into production and music and music analysis, like I'm less mystified by it. So there's, there's still like a huge appreciation and love and excitement, but yeah. I'm not having the thing where when I was 15 and putting on the headphones, I don't understand how a sound came to be. And so I'm obsessed with it because I don't understand. I don't know what it is. Now, if I return and listen to, if I listen to things, I can kind of tell how they did it. 
Um, so it adds a layer of like appreciation, but it also removes a layer of like mystification. Um, and the gist of the essay was like, food is the mystifying thing. Cause I, you know, know how to cook. I, I can, I'm not a bad cook, but I'm not like a making whatever, uh, cilantro foam or <laughs> whatever I, I don't i can't taste something and say oh the eggplant was done at this temperature for this amount of minutes whereas i can listen and be like oh i think it's this kind of delay and i think this is the time that it's set to and i think they panned it this way and that's how it sounds like the crazy overwhelming thing that um so what is has been fun is to return to the especially in working on this project i listened to a lot of music that i was obsessed with when i was 14 15 and didn't understand how it was made and kind of listened to it and was like, oh, yeah, I think they did this. Let me try to make a, a drum machine that sounds like that. Um, so that's been fun, been fun, too. I do love trying yeah. to figure out how something got, how the sausage, <laughs> this is the second time I've said this today, how the sausage gets made. Well, the um, the, uh, the the piece, I mean, in, in listening to being a big Elliott Smith fan, and listen to is I've, I've always had this re- uh, it's like an investigation for me because for me and whatever I understand, there's a, a, what sounds like a simplicity to it yet as I get into it or I hear somebody describe things being shifted and changed, I can gain an understanding of like what's occurring. And like, I don't like, I need to have, like, I want to have a different understanding of what's going on and to be able to realize that. And, uh, that really helps. So anytime, uh, you want to talk one about of his real strengths is, yeah. Uh, making something complicated sound simple um sound it really does though it's not just like a throwaway phrase with as you're saying like with him it really is this like magic or like (laughs) deception of a veil or something and then this is behind it and uh it's just an attractive attractive idea so anytime you want to talk about elliot smith's songs your analysis of them, <laughs> comparing them, uh, open mic, something rather than nothing, anytime. <laughs> it's funny. There's, there's a couple, a couple songs on this record. So when I wait for, when I first started uh, tracking the demos, um, I'd written a lot of the songs. I use voice memos, and I always refer to them and try to cobble them together. So some of the voice memos are from like years and years and years ago, pre-pandemic, but. It, it was like July of the year I started working on it that I was like, I'm going to sit down and listen to all the voice memos, figure out the chord progressions, piece these together, write the, write some, you know, first passes at lyrics that most of which I'll throw away. Um, and so there were a couple songs that I worked on in that. And then I didn't return to it until December. So I, so I spent July making a bunch of songs. And then in December I was like, let me, one a day I'll do pre-production and my pre-production is pretty extensive. So it's got the drums and the bass and all the stuff. So there were a couple songs I did in July that kind of waltzy acoustic guitar songs, Elliot Smith, mm. early Elliot Smithy to me, which is not to say Elliot Smith didn't rock. Heat Miser rocks and oh. later stuff all has amazing, you know, double drums and wild sounding. Um, so I had these like kind of waltzy songs. Yeah. I was like, you know, I've done a lot of like, Kind of Elliot Smith aping things in my time, including recording at New Monkey on the last Sather Teen record. I, I think I'm inspired right now. I was like, I love Mars Volta. I love at the drive-in. I yeah. love all this like Texas post-hardcore stuff. So all the Elliot Smith like waltzy stuff became uh, 
like a very different sound, which is fun to to reflect on when we're playing them live. I'm like, oh yeah, this was like a little acoustic waltz, and now it's the most difficult riff I've ever had to play in my life. Um, I uh, had uh, I had the the director of the Elliot Smith. Um, I'm spacing out right now with regards to the name of the Elliot Smith uh, documentary on. Um, but it was... Uh, Is it Heaven it, Adores it, You? Yeah, Heaven Adores You. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, no yeah, Yeah. Um, beautiful film and, and just really loved that music. And what's interesting for me is uh, I, I grew up out east and I was in Wisconsin for about, I don't know, like uh, about 12 years. So... I got into, I got out here and, you know, it was past the times like Elliot Smith and, and, and all that, but I had been a fan. And so it's always interesting to enter a territory and be around uh, something to be able to kind of get around and hear some of the lore around it or to find like super big local fans who saw all his shows in Portland, mm, yeah. in this area. It's, uh, it's, it's been a real treat to, you know, have those conversations and, and, and get, uh, get deeper into it um so i don't forget sadie uh and this is going to be a bizarre question for you but a necessary question Uh-oh. but where where no no it's it's it, where, where do where do you want people to go to find uh your work we get the new album uh coming out what do you want people to see where do you want them to go yeah you could go to um speedyortiz.com it has all the necessary links to listen to whatever is out by the time this airs and watch whatever videos are out by the time this airs. Um, and that's where you get t- concert tickets too. Um, that's kind of, yeah. And if you want to follow me on a social media thing, it's at sad 13, which is S A D one, three. Thank you so much. Uh, if I could, uh, studied poetry i saw a lot of references to great poets in the back of your book one which i adore uh morgan parker but uh, yeah i love morgan i love morgan we did a reading parker. together on this on this book launch uh in la and I, I i got to tell morgan my book initially had some um epigraphs to introduce the different sections and the book initially opened with one from morgan and oh then i gosh. got scared about clearing all the the quotations and just deleted them all at like the final edit um so it was cool to get to read together and to uh yeah yeah i point out that part as uh it's a poet i get excited about and hope to have her on the show uh, yeah and i hadn't read her novel yet but she sent me a copy and i'm i feel like i always try to save the books i'm most excited about for july because that's my my birthday and i one of those uh I my my whole month is my birthday, so I try to read yeah. the books in the queue that I'm most excited about in July. So that's when I'm going to read Morgan's uh, YA novel. I think it's YA. Music in the queue. Music in the queue. I'm excited about. That's another. Uh, that's another another thing to look for from <laughs> you, um, uh, Sadie, Sadie. I just want to tell you, um, it's 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 truly an honor and a pleasure um, uh, to talk to you. And and like I said, as I was prepping for this, I became a, a cons- concerned as a host because I'm like, okay, this is my brain. This is what I'm interested in. This is what she's a. <laughs> so I got a little bit, but um, I, I just really appreciate you. you you know, um, 
talking about music and talking about um, great art and, and, and sharing, honestly, uh, and, and thank you for the important work that you do, um, you know, speaking up. I'll just say that straight up. I know, you know, speaking up and, and saying what needs to be said is not an easy act. So I just wanted to point that out as well. Yeah, it's great talking to you. Thanks for, for having me on. My pleasure. Everybody, Sadie Dupuy, thank you so much. rather than nothing.